0: Good morning, beloved. So I'm Bill Smith, not to be confused with the Dr. Bill uh, bass player, Dollar Bill. So I'm Dr. Bill, that's right, I forgot that. So the children, they have a handout, and uh, if you complete that handout, then bring that up to me, and uh, I have some treats up here for you. I have little grapes for you in a bag today, grapes, because it's going to relate to what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about a vineyard, okay? So I think it'll be a lot of fun. So our passage today is Mark eleven twenty seven, and we're going to go into Mark 12, the 12th verse. But before we do that, let us pray. This Heavenly Father, your name is above all names. It is worthy to be praised as we've just been doing, and we know that you enter the praise of your people, so we welcome you here, and we're glad you're here because we so desperately need you to understand what you have for us. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, for I have no business being up here, but you brought me to this place. And so I pray you would look past the sins of the speaker, for there are many in Jesus. Then we pray, Amen and Amen. So uh, I was already crying before I got up here, so I'm going to try not to do that as I typically do. But you know, pray for me as as we enter this journey together. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark 11. Steve spoke last week and uh, talked about the the fig tree, if you remember, and the cleansing of the temple. So now we're in the 27th verse. It says, Again they came to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? answer me. Well, they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say of human origin? Because they were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard put a fence around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a slave to the tenants to collect from them his share of the produce from the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another slave to them, and this one they beat over the head and insulted. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. So it was with many others, some they beat and others they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. He sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. When they realized that he had told this parable against them, they wanted to arrest him. But they feared the crowd, so they left him, and they went away. So here we are in the last week of the life of Jesus. He knows what is coming. He has already told his disciples he would be handed over to the chief priests, Pharisees, elders, and scribes, and that they would be instrumental in his death. These are the people who have been placed over the nation of Israel to guide them towards God and towards God's word. They were in authority, they had the final word in many matters. They were also being kept in authority by the Romans. They didn't want to lose their position of authority because they enjoyed the privilege, they enjoyed the wealth that came with their situation in this position of authority. And anyone who threatened that had to be dealt with immediately. And here comes Jesus once again, entering their world, their domain, their turf. They've already been planning to kill him, and they still intend to do so, and Jesus knows all of this, and yet there he is in the temple. So let's go back and look at this story. They arrived in, in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts. Now, one of the things that, that I've tended to notice when I study Scripture, and I would encourage you to do as well, is there's a lot of words we just sort of breeze by, right? <laughs> just go to, oh, yeah, walk in the temple courts. And, and that one caught my attention, just like last week when Steve was teaching, uh, this one phrase, and Jesus was hungry, for some reason spoke out to me. Jesus was hungry. He really was a human. He was a man. Now he's walking in the temple courts. Why is that included there? Well, what had he just done the day before in the temple courts? He cleansed the temple, right? And so now you know what he's doing today. He's walking around the temple courts. And what's he doing? What's he looking for? Is it still clean? he's sort of doing what we call in the in the military an open ranks inspection here he's checking things out now put yourself there for a second let's say you were there the day before and you saw what happened i mean this was a crazy thing never happened in the temple courts before you saw it. you would be there the next morning right hoping that someone else wasn't there so you could be the first to tell them right and you'd be like hey you hear yesterday? There was this crazy guy. There was a rabbi. This guy was turning tables. He was whipping people. He was, oh, shh. Sh- sh- that's him right there. Watch out. <laughs> See what he's going to do now. <laughs> the day before, the leadership didn't approach him. But now today, they do. Because he's becoming even more of a threat to their position. So they're going to challenge him. And they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you? This authority. So these things that they're talking about minimally would be the things he did yesterday, but I think it's even more than that. What gives you the right to do what you're doing? Who do you think you are? Well, if we go back to the beginning of Mark in the first chapter, the 22nd verse we read, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as having authority, not as the scribes. Hmm, not as the scribes. I wonder how the scribes taught. Well, I looked up what the opposite of authority is. Dabbling, beginners, powerless, weak. That's how the scribes must have taught. In addition, Jesus exercised authority over demons. He taught with authority. He has authority to forgive sins. He was able to give authority to his disciples, and he had authority over his own life. His authority was not his own, he says in John 7, but he was given authority over all people in John 17 too. So Jesus says, I'll ask you a question. If you answer, I'll tell you. He knows these people are going to hand him over to death. And he stares them straight in the eye. And he challenges them. Listen, beloved, I want to encourage you today. No matter what is going on in your life, You have the Holy Spirit within you. No matter what situation you're in, you have the power to stare the enemy down. You can be like me, still shaking in your boots. That's okay. But you have the power to stare the enemy down. You have the ability to rise above the situation, and you will do so on eagles' wings. That's who you have in you. That's who I have in me. And he answers their question with a question. Now, for those of you who know a little bit about the rabbinic style, that's what they would do. They'd ask a question, and you would show the answer by asking a question that would imply the answer. However, in this situation, it's sort of reversed. He, he's answering their question with a question, but a question they're not expecting. So he's really not the student. He's the teacher. He's doing the same thing with them that he did with them when he was 12. He's confounding them. See, they think they're an authority, but he's the one actually an authority. They have authority, but no power. Jesus has both authority and power. I'm going to talk about that in a second. So he says John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? Tell me. Well, why does he bring up John's baptism? Mm-hmm. Well, let's remember that baptism was not created by John. That might be a a learning for some of us, right? John didn't create baptism? No, that existed long before John. It was called mikvah. It was a ritual cleansing that they did. There were at least four forms or four times when people would perform this mikveh. For example, there were baths all around the temple whose source of water was from an underground spring, which met the requirements that to do it, it had to be flowing water to wash the sins Away, You couldn't bathe in your own sins in still water. So they would go to these baths and they would perform mikveh, They would baptize themselves in this water, to show themselves that they were clean. But they weren't really repenting from their sins. It was more just a ritual thing they were doing. Another time is when a man decides to reclaim himself as rabbi. He would be lowered by an assistant, but he would raise himself up out of the water. He's declaring himself to be a rabbi. If you remember Jesus' baptism, what does it say after John lowered him down? Then it says, and he came straight up out of the water on his own power. And he's signaling to everybody, I am now a rabbi. Another time mikvah or baptism would be used is when a Gentile would be converting to Judaism. But here John is applying baptism in a whole new way that hadn't really been done before. He was applying baptism to the Jews and specifically for them to repent of their sins. The the burden on them was huge, and that's why they were flocking to see John. They wanted to be cleansed of their sins. They were all going there. And guess who else was going there? The Pharisees and the the teachers. They wanted to see what's going on. They're scoping out this potential threat to their authority. They didn't go into the water. The people went into the water, and the people saw the leaders were not going into the water. So, they discussed it amongst themselves. You see, they were trying to set up a trap for God. This is a good safety tip here. Don't ever try to trap God in anything, (laughs) because you will find yourself ensnared in it just like they did. They discussed it among themselves. They said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you get into the water? Why didn't you believe in John? But if we say of human origin, it just kind of trails off. Depending what version you read, uh, the version I was using for this, it's sort of like an incomplete verse. It just kind of like, if we say human origin, uh, where's the rest of the verse? And it says, well, they were afraid of the people. They feared people because everyone held that John was a prophet of human origin. The question Jesus asked the leaders produce fear among the leaders. Now many of you know I've been teaching leadership for about 24 years. And I don't have any slides that I can think of that says a good leader is afraid of their people. It just doesn't seem to be a leadership trait that we we, we highly prize, right? And here the leaders of the nation of Israel are afraid of their own people. doesn't sound like leadership to me. sounds like politicians. And that's what they really were. So... They went from question-asker, which is the position of power, to the weaker position, an admission of ignorance. In other words, now the student becomes the rabbi. He's asking the students a question they can't formulate an answer. So they say, we don't know. Well, at that point, if they were in shul, in school, that would be failure. You can't even come up with an answer. And he says, then I'm not going to answer you. They could have answered with a question, though. They could have said... um, well, by what authority does anyone do the work of God, but then they would be caught in their own trap. They were chess players, and they knew they were caught in a checkmate. They couldn't win. So they concede, however, what did they really want to say? They wanted to say, "John baptizes by human authority. He's a threat, and you're a threat." This theme of authority is all throughout this section. It's an important word in the scripture. It's a Greek word where it says exousia, which has several meanings. It can mean power of choice or liberty to do as one pleases. It can mean the power of influence or the right or privilege. The term power in Scripture is dynamis and refers to strength or ability. And these terms, power and authority, are often used interchangeably. There's a good book years ago I read by Kennedy and Charles called Authority, the Most Misunderstood Word in North America. People use authority to mean formal authority, the one who has all the power. But there's different forms of authority that people can have, that we can have. And so one can have authority and power, but choose not to use that power, even though they have the authority to do so. An example would be when Jesus is crucified. Did he not have the power to come down off that cross? He absolutely did. With the word, he could have wiped them all out, but he chose not to do that. Because in that case, he said he did nothing under his own authority. Somalia is currently ranked the weakest country in the world by the Brookings Institute. The current president of Somalia has the authority over the whole country, but he has little to no power to do anything at all. That was the same situation that the Jewish leaders were in. They had a form of power or a form of authority, but no power to do anything. The word authority in the New Testament, is used 81 times. Kids, 81 times it's used in the New Testament, kids. That's question three, I think. In English, the word authority comes from the Latin augere, A-U-G-E-R-E, which we get words like authentic, or author, or augment. The one who speaks with authority is authentic. They're the real deal. And author's speaks or writes from with who she is. That's her essence. The one who speaks to augment causes others to be more. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another man, it says in Proverbs. Have you ever been around somebody like that with true natural authority, just being around them and you became more? They somehow challenged you and you wanted to be around them more because you became more by being around them. We here at New Hope Chapel are becoming more and more people of true natural authority. That's who we are as we allow the Holy Spirit to heal us and to guide us into all truth. Jesus repeatedly exercises his own special power of authority through love. With no political clout, no military at his command, no particular social prestige is from a humble family, no wealth to his name, he reserves the authority of power for special occasions, particularly in miracles where he's confirming faith. And his intention is to pass that power on to us. In Luke 24, we read, And see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. In John 1, 2, But all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. When I go like that, you fill that word in. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He gives us power to be witnesses. Jesus was also impressed by a person who understood authority. Might be the only person he was really impressed with in Luke 7. Remember the story about the Roman centurion? He sent his people to go ask Jesus to heal his servant, but as this classic, the communication got a little messed up and they said, he wants you to come. That's not what he said. I know having been over people and giving them orders, it always turns out to be something different, right? So when he sees Jesus coming from afar, what's he do? (laughs) He runs out to him and says, you didn't need to come here. You just say the word, my servant is healed. And he says, for I am a man set under authority like you, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my slave, do this, and the slave does it. So when Jesus heard this, he was amazed, amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is a Gentile. You want to amaze Jesus? Then use the authority and the power you've been given. I would like to amaze him. Now we're going to go on to the next section, chapter 12. But before we do, I want to take a, a station break here and I go back to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 starts out, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one has a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and he cleared it of stones and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and he cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it A wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So let's put a bookmark on that for a second and come back to Mark chapter 12. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. The them would be the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. And he tells this parable. might sound familiar to you. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. So again, just to be clear, the builder of the vineyard is God. The grapes in the vineyard are the people of God. The tenants who oversee and take care of the vineyard are the rulers, teachers, and elders appointed by God. The wall, and this is my, my thoughts, the wall is most likely the word of God. The watchtower is most likely the Holy Spirit. If I go back to the Holy Spirit was over the surface of the water. And the wine press is where the grapes are squeezed or trodden upon in order to produce the wine or produce the good stuff. And again, this is what I think it's God's plan to put the Israelites into situations where they would be trodden upon or oppressed, but their righteousness would produce good fruit. We see this happen a few times. For example, back in Genesis 50. In verse 20, where Joseph explains God's plans to his brothers, you remember his brothers sold him into slavery. They put him in the winepress, didn't they? And then it all turns out the opposite because of Joseph's faith. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I know his brothers thought they put him in the pit, but it was God who put him in the winepress. We see Joseph went through the wine press too. Remember Joseph's situation? He says, oh, that's what I'm talking about, Joseph. He said uh, to Pharaoh what he should do, and then the Pharaoh promotes Joseph. He says, I put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger, and he put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as a second in command. And people shouted, make way. Thus, he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Daniel, another example of going through the wine press. He remains faithful and trusts God, and as a result, produces good wine. And what happens? King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, and he worshiped Daniel. Then the king said, Truly, your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. That's part of the big reveal. Saying that specifically for Joe. Okay. Then Daniel was made ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And if you were here a year or two ago, I pointed out that it was these wise men who passed down Daniel's teaching about the coming of the Messiah, so that when Jesus showed up, so did the descendants of the wise men who were taught by Daniel. So the parable continues. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, before we go any further, I want you now to get into the mind of the Pharisees and the elders and the scribes. They've got to be thinking this. What is he up to? They've read Isaiah. They know this story. They're getting suspicious. They know where this is heading why they're getting mad he's referring to this passage from isaiah and they know what's happening and the the the, the uh, parable goes on they seized him beat him and sent him away empty-handed they sent another they struck him on the head another one they killed these servants would be referring to the prophets of god sent to the nation of israel some were rejected others treated poorly others were killed and then he says he had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenant said, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He's going to come, and he's going to kill those tenants, just like it says in Isaiah 5. Now, what's really interesting at this point in the parable when he says he will come and kill those tenants and give the, other, the vineyard to the others, then he says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture? And then you th- would think, or they would think, he's going to quote Isaiah 5. But he doesn't. He quotes Psalm 118. And he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he was calling them out. He was putting them on the stand. This parable relates back to the previous interaction. There's reason Jesus tells this parable because it relates directly to the issue of authority. They think they're an authority and Jesus is telling them, no, you're only tenants, you're renters, you don't own this vineyard. My father is the authority and I'm his son and therefore I will inherit the vineyard. I have the authority and power, not you. This parable is also about patience, isn't it? About grace and about judgment. God, the vineyard owner, is patient with the tenants. He doesn't immediately come and wipe them out. He gives grace to them. Even after they kill the servants, he extends grace. However, they mistook God's patience for indifference, and they mistook his grace for weakness. What they didn't see coming was their destruction. How patient God is being with us, isn't he? Amen. How often he extends his grace towards us. And although we're not under condemnation, but rather a pass from judgment in Christ, God nonetheless puts us in the winepress, too. He has given us his spirit in order to produce fruit in us. The Jewish leaders whom Jesus confronts had grown cozy and comfortable in their relationship with the Roman authorities and their relationship with the world. They weren't interested in being in the wine press to produce fruits. They weren't interested in being a blessing to all the nations. As Jesus had indicated, that's what his father's house was for. They turned in on themselves, and they no longer took any risks for God's people. I do this myself much too often. I turn in on myself and my issues and my needs, my times of loneliness. Protecting myself, feeling sorry for myself. And in the process, I don't see the needs of the people right in front of me. I become enslaved to my own self-pity and self-doubt. But sometimes I do go outside myself and I take a risk to help and minister to others, and that's when I'm set free. That's what I seek, freedom. Freedom from my past, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, from feeling inadequate, from feeling incompetent, freedom from fear, freedom from pride. Freedom from laziness and comfort. I want to take action. I want to be free to take action. I want to be free to be part of a community. I want to be free to know and embrace who I truly am in Christ. I want to be free to love people naturally the way God loves them without needing to be loved back. Who else wants this freedom? If you do, shout amen. Amen. So let's jump into this wine press together. Knowing the Holy Spirit is our watchtower, Jesus is our hedge of protection, and God himself will press us down so we can bear fruit for him. It will be his feet you feel on your soul. You see, you and I, we bear the name of Jesus now. He is our authority by which we live. All power has been given to him. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And we are in him. So guess where we are sitting right now? We are at the right hand of the Father right now from God's perspective. This whole passage that we've studied today parallels the story of the blind man back in Mark 10. The Jewish leaders, they thought they could see that Jesus was not the Messiah. And they became blind. The blind man said, have mercy on me, son of David. He knew he could see that Jesus was the Messiah. And so his eyes were opened. Let us pray. Father, open our eyes so we can see you more clearly. Open our ears so we might hear your voice more easily. And open our hearts so we might love others more naturally as you do give us freedom from our past give us freedom from our worries give us freedom from feeling inadequate and set us free to be part of a community loving one another as you have commanded us to do that we might be able to love those around us and invite those to come know you who are still lost for it's in Jesus name we pray Amen